morning, everybody. If you've got your Bibles, and I hope you do, uh, turn them to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 through 22. We're going to be closing out the third chapter of 1 Peter in a series uh, that we're going through called A Change in Allegiance. This whole book is about a change in our allegiances from various things to one thing, or one who, I should say, uh, Jesus Christ, and navigating what that looks like when you are uh, a citizen, as we've been called, a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, living in uh, an environment that is sometimes hostile, certainly uh, opposed to some of those kingdom values. This book is all about that, how to, how to navigate what it means to be a Christian, uh, specifically here for us in Santa Barbara, Goleta, Isla Vista, Montecito, and abroad. Uh, and we are right in the middle of it. If uh, this is your first time in the series, um, you're not going to be lost or anything. Uh, actually, you're right in time. This is a, this is a good one. First Peter chapter 3, verse 18 through 22. On the heels of a, a large section of Scripture that we've been studying, where Peter has basically been prescribing to Christians how to suffer well. And what it would mean for the church and the world if the church was filled with Christians who knew how to suffer well, who knew how to count the cost, the implications of that, not only for their lives but for the world. This whole section of scripture from chapter 2 all the way into chapter 3 has been entirely about that. And right now, Peter here turns a corner in a beautiful, strange, difficult section of scripture that you could just read for yourself. Starting in verse 18, Peter says this. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. This is the word of the Lord. Bam! (laughs) Had to get that out, sorry. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word speaks, and it speaks well. We don't always understand everything that it says, but we endeavor to understand, and we endeavor by the power of the Holy Spirit, not just to understand, but to be changed by the power of your word, into the likeness of your son. And so we just submit ourselves, we submit our agendas, we submit our passions, our desires, we submit our drama and our conflicts, all of those things which we know you deeply care about, we just, we just put off to the side for a moment in hopes of receiving whatever it is that you uh, have desired for each of us to receive today. We ask underlying all of that, God, that you would change us, that we would not leave this building, this theater, unchanged, but that we would be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ by the power of the Spirit. We pray that as we open up your word, you would open up our minds and our hearts to understand 
and to be allured to the things that you're saying, to be gripped by them. And we pray that you would cover this place with the power of your Holy Spirit. You would invade spaces. You would invade empty hearts. You would invade clouded minds. And you would do all of those things so that our eyes would be tuned to the glory of Christ who sits on top of a throne. God, we, your willing subjects, want to bow before that throne and say you are worthy of all of the praise and all of the honor and all of the glory. It is our great joy to be near you and to express that with one another. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Sometimes you know you're getting into something that is going to require a deep level of endurance. I think of a particular example in uh, uh, Diana Nyad. Her dream uh, for most of her life was to swim, uh, no small feat, from Cuba to the Florida Keys. Through the muck and mayhem of the Gulf Stream in what one writer described as a river within the sea. It's just a bunch of sludge full of uh, bilge musk and whale uh, belch and all sorts of different things. She actually tried to do this as a 28-year-old, and she failed miserably. And then she tried again. She failed miserably. She tried again. She tried four times. She failed four consecutive times. Then she tried a fifth time when she was 64 years old. And in 2013, after swimming for 53 hours, sick most of the time, as you can imagine, swimming through all of that, with no sponsors who were willing to... uh, to support her financially for this risky, reckless, silly endeavor, but only the reward of her own inspiration. She, at 64 years old, became the first person to swim from Cuba to Florida without the aid of a shark cage, swimming from Havana to Key West, which is a distance of about 110 miles. I I can't even drive 110 miles before I start complaining. You should drive in our car trying to do a road trip to grandma and grandpa. Just the the things that are being shouted. It's too long. It's hot. My legs are tired. When are we going to stop? I'm hungry. I can't even drive this distance. But she swims it, and she swims it uh, first person in history. After that, you can, ex- you can uh, understand and expect all the fanfare. She was invited to TED Talks. She was invited to business meetings, expressing endurance and uh, uh, inciting inspiration and giving speeches. But make no mistake, back in 1978, when she first tried to do this, in her own words, she said, people thought I was insane. Sometimes you know you're getting into something that is going to require a deep level of endurance. And maybe even ridicule. This has been the consistent message of the Apostle Peter through this book we've been going through. The consistent message of First Peter is, hey, you want to follow Jesus? It's going to be costly. But it's going to be worth it too. The consistent message of the Apostle Peter, following Jesus is costly but worth it. It's costly in this sense, and we've kind of been just overloaded with with this basic uh, point that, that Peter shares, but following Jesus essentially means you are signing up to suffer in his name. 
that to participate in the life of Christ means in some way you're going to participate in his sufferings. Following Jesus means sharing in his sufferings. That, number one, that kind of uh, recalibrates our experience of suffering itself. It tells us, one, we're not the only ones who suffer. We're not the only ones in this building who suffer. There's people who have suffered more than I have, you know, that kind of puts it in perspective. But it's not just us as well. We're not the only ones to suffer for obeying the will of God. Peter starts the sentence by saying, Christ also suffered. And specifically, he suffered for you and me. Peter says, Christ also suffered once for sins. In other words, he's saying that Christ, you know, suffered in a variety of ways that we could spend hours getting into in his life. But at the apex of that suffering, he suffered on the cross. When he was nailed to the cross, beaten, almost uh, flayed alive, crown of thorns pressed upon his head, dies on the cross. And the Bible tells us that he dies, Peter says he dies once for sins. What does that mean? Well, if you look at books like uh, Romans chapter 3, if you look at uh, the letters to the Corinthians and Hebrews and all of these different letters, many of which Paul wrote and Peter wrote, the essential thing that, that Jesus gets done in his suffering on the cross, when Peter says he died once for sin, what, how exactly does someone dying do anything for your sin? Well, the Bible tells us that, number one, for all who trust in that death and resurrection, for all who endeavor to follow that guy who say, in your life is something worth following, more, more worth following than anything else, including my own agenda and my own life, for all who put their faith in that guy and in his death, The Bible says that his death causes the absorption of our sin into his body. And all of the destructive ramifications of your sin, that we as sinful human beings that destroy and wreak havoc and at the very least hurt each other and hurt ourselves. And when Jesus dies on the cross, we put our faith in him, he absorbs our sin and all of the destructive, damaging effects of that sin, all without himself being a sinner. Peter says it's the righteous that dies for the unrighteous. The second thing that happens is that we also absorb his righteousness, We absorb all that is good about Christ. We absorb all that has come about from his identity. We absorb his inheritance as the son of God. We absorb uh, all uh, uh, the kingdom principles that he lives. We absorb his righteous resume. In what one reform uh, theologian called the great exchange, he exchanges our sin and destructive lifestyle for his righteousness and kingdom citizenship. And it all changes from there. Christ suffered out of obedience to the Father's mission, but also suffered for his love for us. I think the author of Hebrews says that uh, Jesus endured the cross for the joy set before him. He went to the cross not because he was forced to, but because of the joy that steered his heart as an end result. So when Peter, if you back up to the first word, when Peter says in verse 18, I'm reading out of ESV right now, he says, for Christ also suffered once for sins. That word for, that preposition there, is connecting here our suffering with Christ's suffering. Remember chapter 2, verse 13, all the way through chapter 3, verse 17, our suffering as Christians. 
counting the cost as Christians, Peter is now connecting our narrative of suffering to Christ's suffering. In other words, he's saying the reason we must live that lifestyle, the reason that we count the cost to begin with is because Jesus counted the cost for us. The reason we would ever participate in something that is discomforting or hard or difficult is because Jesus did far more for the love that he had for you and I. We take this seriously because Christ took it seriously on our behalf. Now, I want to give a little clarification about suffering. Whenever this pops up in Peter, we're not talking about general suffering, right? We're not talking about your car breaking down or your headache or a flat tire, although God cares about all of those things. We're not talking about bad things that happened to you because of bad choices that you made. In fact, Peter says a a number of times, what what good is it if you suffer uh, or if you do something wrong and you are beaten for it? You know, (laughs) like just harsh language. He says also, I I think it was a week ago, he said in verse 17, chapter 3, it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. It's better to, to suffer because you're taking the call of God seriously. It's not a blessing to suffer because you did something to deserve it. So this isn't speaking about general suffering, even though God cares about general suffering. This is a specific cost associated with taking on Jesus' way of life. It is the person who takes Jesus seriously and pays the price for it, whether it's through minor inconveniences or vivid persecution. It's us choosing to follow Christ despite all of that. It's taking seriously his original command when he said in Luke, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. If anyone wants to be about my business, if anyone wants to know me and to follow me, they must take up their cross and follow me. He's not saying I want you to wear cross-centered jewelry or tattoo a cross on your forehead He's he's saying, literally and metaphorically, I want you to take up this means of death. I want you to take up your cross. We don't see crosses very often, but in the first century, Jewish people in uh, 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 a land occupied by Rome at that time would have been very familiar with the horrific scene of a crucifixion. They'd have walked by one, you know, regularly on their way to the grocery store, so to speak. It would have been vividly embedded in their memory that this is a horrific way to die. That would have been something that Roman citizens and Jewish people alike would have chosen to ignore and run away from. Jesus is telling his disciples, I want you to embrace it. Not that particular thing. I want you to embrace the cost of following me. For some of his disciples, it would have been a literal taking up of your cross. Many people in the first century would have been crucified for following Jesus and taking his word seriously. But at the very least, it's metaphorical. Jesus, at the very least, is saying, I want all that you thought was important to be dead in comparison to following me. And if something conflicts with following me, I actually want it to be dead. <laughs> Your agendas, your passions, your desires, your biases, all of those things, they come second place to following me. So for many people, it would have been a literal call to die. For us, it might mean that following Jesus is going to include some conflict 
with, your, with the society in which you live, with the culture in which you live, with your friends and your family, with your coworkers, people who don't see eye to eye with you, people who ridicule you and think you're silly for believing things that they think are silly. It might even mean hostility towards you because we live in an area and in a town whose principles and values are completely opposed to those of the kingdom of God. We're living in that. And so Jesus calls us to die. He says, I want you to die to those things that had a hold on you. And I want you to embrace these other things, these things that belong to the kingdom. So when Peter speaks of suffering here, he's not speaking about headaches. He's not speaking about a flat tire. He's speaking about enduring shame and ridicule and mistreatment on his behalf. And he's saying, hey, when this stuff happens, I don't want you to retaliate. That's what he's been saying through chapter 2, chapter 3. Not only does, does he say, I don't want you to retaliate, but I actually want you to bless those who persecute you. And we talked about blessing. It's not like we, it can be very easy to think of the word blessing uh, as some condescending, patronizing gesture to someone else. Like, oh, yeah, you're saying that stuff about me. Well, God bless you too, you know? <laughs> but blessing in the economy of God's kingdom means, if I, could, if I could rephrase it in this way, to bless somebody else means to will their success. It means to desire their well-being. So when you're blessing your enemy, you are, you, you're not just throwing them a pat on the back or some condescending remark. You're desiring inside and out, I want, I want good things to happen to that person who is cursing me. Very hard, right? It takes the power of the Holy Spirit. But these are the, this, this is the type of thing that we're, we're called to in suffering. Peter will go on later. We'll talk about this next week in chapter 4. But suffering can also uh, take on not just the form of persecution, uh, Uh, but denying our sinful desires and habits is a form of godly suffering. We're suffering in the flesh is what sometimes people call it. We'll talk about that next week. But Peter has told us, chapter 2, this is what you have been called to, this pattern of life, because because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. So we endure the cost of following Jesus because he endured the cost of saving us from our sins. We undergo whatever we have to. We count the cost, we press on because he counted the cost for us and we are thankful and filled with joy over that. Now at this point, you might not be thankful and filled with joy. You might be totally weirded out by all of this this, uh, command and uh, pledges to, to endure suffering. Maybe you're saying, you know, these verses about the cost and suffering and enduring ridicule and blessing people, like this, this is so foreign to me. It's so backwards. It doesn't even make sense. Nothing else in my life has that type of flavor to it. Everything I do in my life, you know, I, I'm doing to get ahead. And if I have to push someone else uh, behind me in order to get ahead, well, it's worth it. That's, that's how you live here. Perhaps you feel that way here in the city of Santa Barbara. That is the problem, right, in our culture that colors so much of what we do, including our, including our faith. So deeply ingrained in our visions of success and happiness is this concept that we have to flee from any type of discomfort. 
So much so that we will do anything. We will pay as much as we, uh, as we can. We will spend as much time as we can. We will commit all the resources and time and effort that we can to avoid any type of suffering, difficulty, or minor inconvenience. Name anything in this life that is an inconvenience or a difficulty to you, and I guarantee there's a book, a TED Talk, a pillar, an app for that. Something you can search and divulge and dig into that will alleviate your particular brand of suffering. Now, this isn't inherently bad, right? It's not bad to want to avoid suffering. I do it all the time. If I have a headache, I take an Advil. No guilt there, right? It's just interesting that it so fuels much of our motivation for everything else. It's one thing to want to evade suffering. It's an entirely different thing to center your life around the evasion of suffering. And it's even far worse when that way of looking at life, that American dream model, begins to infiltrate your faith and your spirituality and your religion to where you go from saying, uh, you know, our culture's a version of happiness is to be free from discomfort. You begin to evolve into saying uh, happiness and success in Christianity is to evade suffering. Once you get to that point, you'll start to, be, you'll start to doubt that a loving God would ever allow you to endure anything that you don't like. When you get to that spot, you're in trouble. You begin to start thinking things like, this isn't going right, or this is difficult, or I was faithful to God, but this is happening. I must be doing something wrong, or God must be doing something wrong. Whenever we take this idea that true happiness is correlated with the evasion of suffering, we tend to move off onto the path of Christianity. And the truth is, it's just not consistent across the board. Think of so many well-meaning experiences in your life and tell me that this isn't the case. Think of things like your deepest friendships. Why do we have friendships that are shallow with no conflicts? And yet, we simultaneously have some of these deep, meaningful friendships that are riddled with difficulty and conflict. If I were to look at some of my closest friends in life, they are peppered with difficult situations. In fact, I'd almost go out, uh, go on, uh, go out to say that uh, it, anytime I go through a conflict with a good friend and we endure and make it out, my trust for them is actually deepened. My friendship is actually intensified by the difficult situation. And yet I have friends who I've never had an argument with, never had a, a spat with, never even so much as frowned at each other, and we have, a, you know, we have a, just a surface-level friendship. And this is not bad, but it's not deep either. My deepest friendships have also been the most hard. Think of things like working out, going to the, going to the gym, yoga. Who would want to bend their bodies into difficult, painful positions in rooms that are 95 degrees, surrounded by other sweaty bodies doing the same thing? Apparently, a lot of people, right? Think of going to the gym. What are you doing? You're breaking down your muscle tissue. 
You're working your body, sometimes to the point of pain. You're uh, removing yourself from other enjoyable things to do something that's difficult. Perhaps you're eating differently, too. You're not eating things that you really want to eat, like that donut. You're eating things that maybe don't, maybe taste a little more like cardboard. Why do we do stuff like that? We don't just do them, we love to do them. I heard an amen somewhere over here. Think about the first year grind of a startup business. Why do we, why do we put ourselves through some of the most difficult things like this? The first year of a startup business, you, when you lose all of your money, you lose your friends, you lose your sanity, maybe you even lose some of your hair. And yet we endure and we press on. Why? Because even though we hate to suffer, we hate discomfort, and we try to avoid it, we also simultaneously, deep down, also know that some of our greatest blessings also emerge out of pain and discomfort and difficulty. In fact, there are some things where difficulty and discomfort are absolutely necessary for the blessing like the birth of my kids. Now, I don't know about the discomfort of childbirth, but I have some sources. <laughs> Tell me that it's not comfortable. <clears throat> they say that uh, you're giving birth or whatever. You know, Wikipedia says this. Whatever. <laughs> that there's like this glow on her face. Brianna had a glow. It was this glow of I'm going to kill you after this. Yet, uh, you know, yesterday my my youngest kid, Jude, uh, turned two. My daughter's three and a half. She'll turn uh, four in September. But years after that, Brianna will tell you and me that despite some of the worst discomfort in her life, if I can even call it discomfort, it's probably a stronger word for that, I'm sure, it was worth it. Every time that little nugget just looks at me and smiles. Every time I crawl into mom's lap and grab her by the cheeks and kiss her on the lips, like she forgets all of that stuff. Some of our greatest blessings emerge out of pain and discomfort and difficulty, and other times that difficulty and pain and discomfort is absolutely necessary for the blessing. So maybe it's not the way of Jesus that's backwards after all. Maybe it's our American lens of happiness and success that's backwards. Jesus says that if you want to find true freedom, you follow me. You're going to have to count the cost, but it's going to be worth it. You know how it's going to be worth it? We must share in Christ's suffering, but sharing in Christ's suffering will always turn out for our good. Our suffering will at one point in life be vindicated for all it's worth. I know this because of what Peter says in the text when he basically tells us Christ's suffering was vindicated. Christ went through so much, but at the end of the day, it was vindicated. Look at verse 18. Uh, Even though he was being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. In other words, that's just a fancy way of saying he died and was buried, but he was raised to life by the power of the Holy Spirit. His death was vindicated. Death could not hold him down. He underwent that suffering, but it was worth it, and it was renewed and redeemed. 
Look at verse 22. He's now at the highest place of authority, having gone into heaven as, uh, and, as it, uh, as, and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. All of the powers of hell that came after him full throttle have now been subjected to him. He is sitting over and above them in full authority and power, vindicated for life. He sits over the power of death. Death could not hold him down. Vindicated for life. He, under, he endured suffering for a short while, but he is vindicated for all of eternity. Then look at verse 19. This is a strange one. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Verse 19, excuse me. In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey. This is a hard verse. This is maybe one of the hardest verses to interpret in all of the New Testament. But I'm going to try to do it anyway. <clears throat> Actually, uh, so difficult is it. There's a, a few different opinions about what it means. What, what does it mean that he went and claimed to the spirits in prison? Even the great Martin Luther, the great Reformed theologian, who certainly was not shy about showing his confidence and his ability to interpret scriptures, looked at this and said, I, don't, I still don't know what it means. Today, there's basically three different positions on this. I'll briefly throw them out. I'll tell you which one I think it is. And then after that, I'll tell you why it doesn't matter what I think it is because here's the point of all of it, and that's what we can hang on. But the three are this. The first one, what, what some people will say about this verse, what does it mean that he proclaimed his spirits in prison? Some will say, well, it means that when he died, he went into hell and he, he proclaimed to people there and gave them a second chance. I don't think that's possible because of what other things in the Bible say, like in Hebrews, that it's appointed for man to die once and then comes judgment. And in Luke, when Jesus speaks about Lazarus, uh, the poor man and the rich man, uh, and after they die, uh, after they die he, he begins to share that there's no crossing over. In other words, there's no second chance after this life. You have one chance, you have one life to make a right decision about who Jesus is. You are promised one life, but you are not promised a length in that life. You don't know how long you're going to live. You don't know the condition of your, what your life is going to be. You don't know how long you, you're going to have in order to make that decision. And some of you right now are prolonging the period, saying, I want to live the way that I live right now, and, and then later I'll consider religion, spirituality, maybe even Jesus. You're not promised tomorrow. You don't know what tomorrow holds for you. You need, if you are taking life seriously, you need to stand in front of Jesus' claims upon your life right now and consider what you will do with his words. Don't wait for tomorrow. Don't wait for the next day. Consider his claims that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. What are you going to do about the outlandish claims that he made in history and proved and validated by his death and resurrection? You've got to deal with that. Please don't wait until tomorrow. Some of you need to make a decision today about what you're going to do about Jesus. But I digress. The second position on verse 19 is that, you know, in the days of Noah, before Jesus was born, you know, the pre-existent Jesus, his, you know, he's always been in existence, but you know, not baby Jesus, but before that, he, he somehow, in the same way that the Holy Spirit speaks through people, Jesus was speaking through Noah to the people uh, that were ridiculing him. That's one position, proclaiming 
to those people. The third one, and this is the one that I think fits the most, is that after Jesus died, maybe before he, he rose from the dead, he proclaimed his victory to a bunch of principalities and powers, demons, angels, anyone who could hear. Um, this fits really well with the rest of the text, which says basically that in verse 22. He has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers being subjected to him. It's, it fits really nicely with this theme that threads through this passage that Jesus is vindicated in all of it that he did. We also see this type of thing in the New Testament. I love, uh, I think it's Ephesians chapter 3, maybe verse 10, where it says that through the church, God made his eternal wisdom. He put it on display uh, for principalities and powers and authorities to see. It was as if God was bragging about how wonderful his redemptive plan was to demons and angels. In Colossians, I think it's chapter 2, we're told that on the cross, Jesus made a show of demons openly, triumphing over them. He humiliated them. He made a show of them. He proclaimed his victory in their faces. So I think that's what it is. But Martin Luther doesn't know what it is, so I can't, I'm not any better than Martin Luther. So take it with a grain of salt, even though he did become really senile in his old age. But whatever. Even if we don't know which one of those it is, here's what we can know. This passage, this section, this paragraph is about vindication. Jesus was ridiculed, he was laughed at, he was beaten, he was killed, but in the end, he's triumphant. And the reason Peter is saying this is so that we can know, we who have taken on that pattern, that if Christ's suffering was vindicated and made right, our suffering will be vindicated and made right too. That our suffering is not wasted, it is not nil, it is not arbitrary, and it is not the end story. It will be turned around for God's glory and for our eternal good. He said this all the way, uh, in verse 14, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. What does that blessing speak of? It's that kingdom It's that kingdom currency in which something in the future, God's kingdom, is being pushed back into the present. It's an experience of what is to come later. Peter is saying you are blessed if you count the cost. There's something from the future, the kingdom of God making its home in your life. The spirit of God is resting upon you. For Christ also did this, verse 18. Not only that, but we're given these pictures, these illustrations like Noah and baptism. Peter tells us that Noah, I'll just read it. He said, he went and proclaimed, the spirits in prison, proclaimed his victory, I think is what it's saying, verse 20, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, Noah's family, were brought safely through the water. In other words, in a roundabout way, Peter is saying, hey, Noah was vindicated too. You try building a giant Costco-sized ark in the middle of Topeka, Kansas. Spend a year of your life, quit your job and do that and see how people treat you. Not good. Peter is saying, hey, he didn't get, he didn't get treated well either. He was ridiculed and what's worse, people didn't repent. Only, only his family did, but he was vindicated. Actually, Peter specifically says that it was, he was brought safely through water. Water in the Bible 
always seems to symbolize judgment. And it certainly did in Noah's day. Water was not a blessing. Water was judgment. But Peter is saying that God brought, graciously brought Noah and his family, eight people, even though everyone gave him a hard time, ridiculed him, brought these eight people through the water. And his faithfulness to God was vindicated. It was costly, but it was worth it. He then goes on to say, using that as a, as a uh, kind of a, an illustration, he says, he, he now turns his attention to you and me. And he says, in the same way, baptism. Baptism is similar. Or specifically, baptism corresponds to this, to, to Noah's vindication. He says, it, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who went to heaven and was vindicated. In other words, he's saying, baptism, that thing that a Christian does when they're immersed in water and they're brought up out of the water as a symbol of their pledge of allegiance to Christ, a change in allegiance, that act has this this eternal quality about it that matches what Noah went through. What happened with Noah? Even though people ridiculed him, even though it seemed silly at the moment, even though it was difficult and hard, God vindicated him by changing his life and bringing him through that difficult situation and judgment to salvation. Baptism is the same way in this. It's not the act itself that saves you. And Peter says that straight up, right? He says, baptism now saves you, not the, not the act of, of washing dirt off of your face. It's not when, you know, later today we're going to go to Ledbetter and do baptisms. It's not the physical act of going in the water and coming up that does anything to save you. He says, rather, it is the spiritual baptism that that physical baptism symbolizes. It's that spiritual baptism where we make an appeal to God for a good conscience. An appeal is a pledge. It is you pledging your allegiance to Christ. It is saying, in spite of all of you done for me, in spite of who you are, I believe and I now turn around. I repent from my prior course of action to now this new one and I'm going to follow you for the rest of my life. That physical act of going in the water simply crystallizes what happens in our hearts. So it's not going into the water that saves you. It's not even the pledge itself, as if uh, by praying a certain combination of words, a a so-called sinner's prayer, that we can do anything to save our souls. What is it that saves Peter? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is one man coming to life by the power of the Holy Spirit. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the firstborn of many who will come to life. The guy who rose from the dead, conquered death, now gives that life-giving power to anyone who comes to him by faith. That's what saves you. The appeal then is us saying, yeah, I want to be saved. I do it. I'm in. The baptism is that powerful visual that crystallizes that reality in our hearts. It's the same type of thing like when we we bow down on the carpets to worship. When you bow down on the carpets and you lay face down to worship, does that like make your worship better to God? No. What does it do? It often crystallizes what you are experiencing in your heart. When I lift my hands in praise, it does something to me, not to God. Baptism in the same way does something to you. 
It fastens an eternal, supernatural truth in the depths of your heart. God saved you, and nobody can unsave you. Not even these demons and angels that are under Christ's foot, verse 22. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul, even speaking of baptism in chapter uh, Romans 6, verse 3 through 4, he didn't even speak about the water baptism. He, he always spoke about bat- baptism as that inner baptism. Look at what he says. He says in Romans 6, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Look at this mysterious union-like language. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we might walk in newness of life. So one, any time a person is baptized, they are forever solidifying this truth in their memory. God saved me by grace. He did it. It was by his righteous life. It was by the supernatural, his supernatural ability to breathe life into dead things. And I was a dead thing and he breathed life into me. I will forever remember the grace and power of my God. But it's not just something that happens in your past. Some of you have been baptized. You don't need to get baptized again. You know what you get to do? You get to recall that baptism. And you get to let that baptism and all that it stands for begin to form and shape who you are. Because Paul right here is speaking about now our quality of life. We weren't just saved once and for all uh, and then just to be left alone by the Spirit of God. We were saved and now we get the Spirit of God in us conforming us to the, uh, to the image of God. That means we are constantly recalling the reality of that baptism. Well, I am constantly dying to, in the water to all of the things that are not of God. I am putting to death all that is in me that doesn't match uh, Christ's will for my life. And I am rising, metaphorically speaking, to a new quality of life. In every single decision that I make as a Christian, I am replicating some aspect of that baptism. Anytime I choose to love somebody that doesn't uh, deserve to be loved, anytime I choose to be generous, anytime I choose to be hospitable, anytime I choose to uh, be faithful to the Lord, anytime I choose to put you before myself, I am killing my fleshly desires and I am allowing life to be breathed into the new man that is Chris Lazo. We live the reality of our baptism until we see him again. Water, signifying death. Your old life, done. Air, signifying resurrection. You've been brought to a new life. Peter is saying, hey, there's a cost associated with following Jesus, but it's worth it. You know how it's worth it? It means that this life, in this life, you are constantly being transformed into the likeness of Jesus. And he even uses the difficult circumstances to accomplish that vision. You may say, well, that's great, but how is any of this good for me? What is my incentive to follow this Jesus? I understand the guarantee that there's going to be difficulty. I understand that there's going to be vindication once, you know, someday. But what is, how is this at all good for me? 
What is the point of following Jesus? What is the point of Christianity? Why did he die on the cross and why, on cross and why should I care? Some people might say because forgiveness. I say to that, what's the point of forgiveness? Some might say, well, to get into heaven. I say, well, what's the point of heaven? Some will say, well, so that we can be made righteous like God is righteous. And I say, what's the point of being righteous? And Peter answers this question in his first line by saying, Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Believe it or not, the end goal of the cross is not the forgiveness of your sins. That's a stepping stone. The end goal isn't even heaven. And all of our caricatures from childhood of what heaven is like, it's country club, playing harps or whatever, false visions. It's not even righteousness for righteousness' sake. Peter is saying the end goal of all of this and your highest good in the universe is for you to be in the presence of the God who made you for himself. It's to experience what you have been created for, the deepest form of union that you have ever known possible. I love how King David, the man who experienced everything good and everything bad, he was a murderer and an adulterer, and yet he simultaneously experienced wealth, riches, victory, and success. And he says in Psalm 27, there's only one thing I've asked for of the Lord. Only one thing that matters. Only one thing I will ever seek after. I've had it all. I've even had a kid, Solomon, who's had it all. He's had more than me. Only one thing I want at the end of my life, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. I just want to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. I just want more of the Lord. I just want to be captivated by his presence. I just want to be dripping with who he is. I just want more of him. I just want to be immersed in him until you realize what you have been created for. Do you understand Acts chapter 17 says that the reason God created you and I, it says that our purpose, that he scattered humanity, men and women all throughout the world, is that we might seek after him and find him? Do you realize that the, the book of Acts tells us that the reason you exist is to, uh, that, uh, is to seek after God so that you might find who he is? That in him we live and move and have our being. And apart from him, we actually are just a shadow of what we are meant to be. And you're talking about happiness and you're looking for it in the American dream. You haven't even tasted happiness yet. You are meant for God. And everything that your heart and soul drips for is found in his presence. And until you realize that, you will spend the rest of your life disappointed chasing broken dreams, finding things, maybe even attaining things, and finding yourself sorrowly disappointed because it did not meet your appetite. You want true happiness? We were called, in the words of A.W. Tozer, to an everlasting preoccupation with God. That's what you're made for. And Jesus suffered through everything to bring you back to that place. And he calls you and I, who want to taste and see, who want a taste of that salvation. He says, you know, this life is rough. 
and there's going to be some difficulties involved with following me. But if you follow me, I promise you it's going to be worth it. It's going to be vindicated. In fact, so good is this life that you're going to experience with me. That when you look back in retrospect at the things you suffered, even though it doesn't make sense now, they're, they're going to look silly in comparison to what you gained. Isn't that what Paul, Paul said? I consider everything in this life to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. It's because of him I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them filth so that I may gain Christ. In other words, I will lose anything that is required of me to lose if it means I get a morsel more of this Jesus. Maybe you're at that place and you want more. What do you do? I want to give you three really quick things. One, if you haven't made that conscious decision to follow Jesus, do it right now and get baptized and start a new life. Start a new process of walking with this Jesus who loves you. If you have been baptized, don't get baptized again. Look back on that baptism and allow it to form you. It could form you in two ways. Some of you have been trying this Christian thing, this religious thing for many years, trying to be a better Christian, trying to do all of the Christian things, go to church regularly, give financially, be involved in ministry, hoping, because you maybe uh, have some workaholic tendencies, that by doing the right set of things, it will bring you closer to God, and it will, uh, it will uh, I should say, make him accepting of you. Maybe you've experienced that uh, with your dad or your mom or a loved one, and you're now projecting that onto God, thinking, I need to do like one, two, three, and four, five things in order to get on God's good side. And I'm suffering right now, which means God must be mad, mad at me. But baptism teaches us that when we went into the water and when we were picked back up, it was by the power of the resurrection. Jesus saved us without any regard for whether we deserved it or not. That means, Christian, you stand in a pile and in a cesspool of a bunch of mistakes that you made, but Christ sees you only one way, not according to the flesh. He sees you walking in his own righteousness and the newness of life. Some of you need to think back on your baptism and rest in it. You need to be like, I made so many mistakes today. I'm not the person that I thought I was supposed to be, but God has been faithful to me. And I'm just going to sit there for a while. Some of you are on the opposite end of the spectrum. You've been baptized. You made that conscious decision to follow Jesus, but you're not doing anything about it. You're like, yeah, I'll see him when I die. You need to participate in his life and death. Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. It's not my life anymore. Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Some of you need to look at your baptism and say, I died in the water. The old Chris Lazo, I left him at Ledbetter Beach, bro. Never to return again. What came out of the water was a person made in the likeness of Christ. What do you have for that person, Jesus? Where do you want to take me? I'll go anywhere. What we can do right now, and this is where I end, and I want to ask 
Betsy and the team to come up, is right in the meantime, as we sing, we can simply just begin to recalibrate our souls away from the things that were distracting us when we came in here onto the one who sits upon the throne vindicated. The one who sits upon the throne vindicated and who looks at you, his precious children, and says, I know you're dealing with a lot of stuff, but just look at me. Just be preoccupied with me, and I promise it'll be worth it. We can do that this morning through songs and praise, singing words that are true about God, even if we don't feel it. Because like baptism, we're crystallizing a reality in our hearts. You can do that by partaking of the bread and of the cup, also in the, up top. Taking the bread and the, 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 the cup, and as, as Paul would say, every time we do it, we are proclaiming his death until he comes. You are reminding yourself that you are powerless, but that Christ was powerful to save, and he did it. And in so doing, you strengthen your faith. You can do it in community. You can go to someone on the, uh, on the prayer team, to the left or to the right, up on the mezzanine floor, and just ask in a, a state of vulnerability, I need, prayer for, I, I need prayer in this area of my life, and I just want to receive what God has for me right now. Lastly, you can taste and see that the Lord is good by choosing today and for the rest of your life here on out to live differently. You're called to something different. You're called to something different. Heavenly Father, we too say that there is one thing we are seeking after we may dwell in your house and gaze upon your beauty. So to the Holy Spirit, the one that John said testifies about Jesus, we ask that Spirit of the living God, you would testify now by putting the beauty of the Lord on display in this house today. To such a deep effect that we would be captivated that we would look at you and we would look at our lives and we would say, weighing them in the balance, you are worth losing anything. For those of us that are having a hard time with that because we have a lot to lose, ask for your mercy and your grace. For the hand of, of God to come and touch people on the shoulder right now to speak into hearts, to clear clouded minds. And anything that you decide or choose to do that will enable broken, hurting people to see you more clearly and decide to follow after you. May you do all of this for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name.